So tonight we're going to start with, uh, with Gideon. And before I pray and read this passage, I want us to think about one question that's going to drive us through the whole teaching tonight. And it is this. How can I know that I have the presence of God? How can I know that I have God's face, that, that he and I are good together? How do I know that I have his presence? Let me pray for us, then we'll read together. Father, thanks for this time. We pray that you would meet us. You send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, uh, open the eyes of our heart, that we might find you in your word. For those in here who are um, struggling, Lord, we pray that you would meet them. For those who need faith, we pray that you would give it to them. For those of us who need to be humbled, we pray that you would humble us. And we pray that you would exalt us uh, in due time so that you might be glorified through our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. This is a long passage, and so um, we're going to read it. And uh, actually, if it's a short passage, we'd read it too. But um, short introduction because it's a long passage. Let's look at this. Starting in verse 1, chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves in the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour, and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave them no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the people cried out for help to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at, or- at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. An ephah is about 35 or 40 pounds, so he makes a big cake, apparently. Uh, The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot, 
And he brought them uh, to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all those who stood against him and said, Will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. And we skip down to verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground only let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Sin's reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Do any of you have a, this is not a, a hypothetical question, do any of you have a bizarre fear? Like something that's really weird that you're kind of scared of that you would be willing to share with the group? People will love you for it, right? So, yeah, what do we got? Who's that, Elise? Wow. Every girl was nodding with you, as was Jared Cozart. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's real. Okay, anybody else have a kind of a bizarre fear? Uh, Tally? Afraid of eyeballs. Wow. Yeah, that's bizarre. Uh, what about them? Just. <laughs> that's legit. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, Hunter, what do you got? It's afraid of co- like puffy cotton balls. 
What? Oh, it's Tally also. <laughs> and I might or might not be dating her. Um, yes. Um, over the last couple of years, I've developed a fear of if there's a door that I can't see on the other side of, reaching out for the handle, I'm convinced every time that someone's going to open it, it's going to jam my fingers or peel back my fingernails. So I go up beside it and put my foot at the bottom, and then I'll reach for it. So it hasn't, it's never happened, but can't you imagine that being terrible? Um, so there's, uh, you know, we're all afraid of ridiculous things. The rest of us who didn't say anything certainly are. It's okay if you didn't share. We know who you are. Um, but there's real things we're afraid of too, right? We're afraid of being alone. Um, we're afraid of being lonely. We're afraid of being left by ourselves without something to do. So someone created Netflix. Um, we're afraid of, uh, of being abandoned by friends and them turning on us. We're afraid of being known. We're afraid of being needy, uh, being a bother to people. Um, so there's kind of ridiculous, bizarre fears, and then there's real fears. And for those of you who have kind of fear, the real fears that exist just from day-to-day life, some of you live in, in a functional paralysis from those things. Um, you exist in a constant state of anxiety, which is a, a form of fear about what's to come. And it can be crippling. In this passage, Gideon has some very, very real fears. And the things that he's afraid of are, there's actually four of them that we're going to see in this passage. And what we're going to do is we kind of consider the question, how do we know that we have God's presence? Is we're going to ask and answer this, what are Gideon's fears How does God answer those fears? What about Gideon's fragile faith? And what kind of action does God do when we have fragile faith? So let's look at Gideon's fears. Um, This chapter, if you look right there in verse 1, it begins where so many of the chapters in in, uh, Judges begin. It says, And the people of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And what's interesting about that phrase is in Hebrew... It says they did the evil. It, it, was, it was a thing now. The evil that they were doing and they had done for so long, decades now, centuries even, is that they had given themselves to worship the gods of the land. Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, who brought them out of Egypt and did all these wonderful things for them, he was the only true God. And yet when the people went into the land, he told them, he said, you need to cast out all those people and their idols, because if you don't, you're going to start worshiping them. And they didn't, and so they started worshiping them. That's the evil that they were doing. They were whoring after other gods. Now, why does God, that whoring word, that's God's word. Why does he invoke this sexual imagery when he talks about how his people have been unfaithful to him? It seems a little strong. Here's the picture. God sees himself as a jealous lover with a, with a deep husbandry love of his bride, Israel. And so when she is out running around on him and cheating on him, he says, rightly so, that you are whoring after other lovers. And he calls them to repent and to stop doing that. And in this passage, 
The people who, who were taking over were the Midianites. And, and the interesting thing about the Midianites is that they're a little different than the other people we've seen today. The other people come in and, and try to conquer Israel and take their land back and all this stuff. But Midian doesn't do that. What they do is they've got it on their calendars that the crops are going to come in in June. And so they show up with their wagons and with all their people, and they totally pillage the land when the crops come in. And so the Israelites, they have no food. They're presumably starving. They're terrified of these people coming, and so they flee to the, to the mountains and the caves, it said. They're being pillaged. It's an economic poverty that they're experiencing here at the hand of Midian. In the midst of that, they cry out for help in verse 6. Help us, Lord. They're taking all of our stuff. And we notice for the first time that God doesn't send a judge right away. He doesn't send a deliverer. He sends a prophet. We're going to talk about that in just a second. So the prophet comes and tells them something, and then the Lord brings the deliverer. Then he brings Gideon. But Gideon comes with all kinds of fears. Let's look at them. The first one is simply that Gideon fears for his safety. In verse 11, um, if you look right there, it says that he is, he is beating out his wheat in a wine press. Now, most of us aren't agricultural people except for me. Um, just kidding, I'm not. But what that means is that Gideon is terrified when the Midianites come because if you're coming to take people's crops, what do you do? You go to the granaries. You go to the place where they're threshing out the crops, which means dividing the wheat from, the, from all the chaff, and they're keeping the good stuff, throwing away the bad. So Gideon is not there. He's at the wine press doing his wheat thing there because he doesn't want them to find him. So he's, he's scared. He, he fears his safety is at stake. So he's hiding. We understand that. The second thing that Gideon fears is his stature and status. His stature and status. Look in verse 14. The Lord comes to Gideon and says this, I'm going to use you to deliver your people from the hands of the Midianites. And Gideon immediately starts in at God and says something essentially this. Are you kidding? Me? You're going to use me to help all of them? God, don't, don't you know that I'm of this clan and I'm of this family? And don't you know we're the weakest? And I'm the weakest of the weak. What Gideon essentially is saying is, God, don't you know that I'm from a family of computer programmers? Like, we don't do the whole physical battle stuff. We sit in front of computers. I know, you computer science majors are bowing up. And then Gideon says... And I'm a, I'm, I'm a coder. I actually am like the worst form of a computer science major. I just sit right there. I had lunch with Tally yesterday, and Tally told me she was a computer science major. And I'm just like, really? You're just like so bubbly. And that's not often what I think about when I think computer science majors. I'm just going to jump off a cliff because uh, y'all hate me. So Gideon, is, he just can't believe that God is going to use him to, to go give this, uh, this battle, this victory in battle. He's in disbelief. He's afraid that he doesn't add up, that he doesn't bring enough to the table. His, his assessment of himself is that God can't use him. He's not the right one. And I think at that place, we actually can relate to Gideon. Because for those of you who have thought about God and who have considered following Jesus, if not already following him, no doubt at some point you've thought, really, God? Do you really love me? 
Even with all of my stuff, my baggage, my, my ongoing sin issues, my insecurities, my anxiety, God, you saw the way that I treated that girl last week and you saw the way I talked behind her back. Are you sure you want me? And friends, we think that and we're constantly assessing ourselves through these lens because we live in a world that does that too. If you perform at school, if you get the grades, then you go get a job. If you nail the interview, you get the job. If you have all the right stuff on your resume, you get the position. If you're nice enough, you get accepted in social circles or invited to be in the right sorority or fraternity. The world is this meritocracy that rewards your actions. It rewards your behavior. It rewards what you can offer to it. And what we begin to see here with God is that He is just not like that. That He loves, He loves, and we've seen this in weeks past, He loves to take unlikely people and use them in His story of redemption. So Gideon fears what he's bringing to the table But he also, thirdly, he fears his surroundings. Look at verse 27. We're going to talk about it more in just a minute. But notice how he sets out to tear down the altar to Baal and the Asherah at night because he's afraid of his family and the men of the town. And again, I think we can relate to this. God is asking Gideon to do something crazy, something that would have been very taboo in that culture. I mean, again, these are people who are worshiping these things. This is like, this would be the equivalent of God saying, hey, yeah, um, Go tear down the mosque over here on the other side of campus. Right? I'm not at all saying God's going to ask you to do that. I'm saying it would be, you'd be hysterical. You'd be like, wait, what? What are they going to think about me? Am I going to get kicked out of school? What happens if my parents find out? Like, ah. Friends, if, if you follow God... If you are committing yourself to follow Jesus, the rewards and the benefits of that are out of this world. They are absolutely amazing. And if you don't know that, I would love to talk to you about what all that means. But you can be sure of this, that at some point in your life, God will lead you to do something strange. Or something that is very weird in the eyes of the people around you. He may call you, he may really lay it on your heart to turn down the job that makes $90,000 right out of college to take a job that makes half that or a third of that. Or he might even call you to be an RUF intern where you go raise $30,000. Right? And your parents and your friends look at you and say, are you crazy? Mine did. And yeah, I guess I am. By your standards, I guess I'm crazy, but... This is what God's calling me to do. I I know that it's true. And you'll look weird and you'll look foolish. Following Jesus and giving Him the reins of your life will make you weird sooner or later. That's a promise. Look, nominal Christianity, just saying that you're a Christian and not actually following Jesus, just saying you're a Christian, that won't cost you anything. Because what that means is that you'll just kind of say you're a Christian, but your actions won't really follow that. And you won't really give yourself to the Lord and do what He says. You'll, you'll kind of invoke Christianity when it's convenient for you. But following Jesus, giving yourself to what He calls us to in His Word, will make you weird and strange. And so you'll fear the people around you. Fourth thing right here, Gideon feared that God wasn't with him. 
He feared God's absence. Look at verse 13. There's the angel of the Lord shows up and says, and Gideon says, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And all of this that he's talking about is, is all of the oppression that we've been going under. The Midianites have been coming, pillaging us. So the angel of the Lord shows up and says, the Lord is with you. And Gideon says, uh, hold on just a second. I'm looking around me, and it, it doesn't seem like we have God's presence right now. It seems like he's totally punted on us, and he is somewhere else. You're going to have to convince me that he's here. He fears God's absence. And we can understand this, I think. Think about Gideon for just a second. He was part of the nation of Israel. He was part of God's people. And so he had heard something about Yahweh, about their God. But yet he was living in this land that also worshipped these other things. And so maybe he just didn't know a lot about Yahweh. Maybe his theology was this deep and, and he just didn't understand how all this worked. And so was God far away? Was he close? How can I know that? And then there's that thing about God's presence that, okay, but if I do trust that he's with me, what happens if he lets me down? I want to hope in him, but man, what happens if it just all falls apart and, and I feel like he's not with me anymore? Some of you might be relating to that. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe um, you were taught some of these things. But here you are in college, and and maybe for the first time you're surrounded with lots of varying beliefs and belief systems and worldviews. And and some of those worldviews are very strong, and they're coming at you, and and you're kind of like, "Uh, I don't don't know what I believe. You know, I always said I was a Christian, but uh, Being a Christian might make me weird, and that seems pretty plausible to do that. And you kind of hit this moment of crisis. See, Gideon lived amidst a pluralistic society where there were lots of other things. It was okay to worship Baal and and bow down to Asherah and worship Yahweh. That was okay. Right? We're tolerant. And in our culture, the same thing. Like, sure, you go worship Jesus, but, like, I'm going to worship what I want, and let's don't ever talk about that we can't and shouldn't do that. Right? And so we just are kind of forced to tolerate all these other things. And friends, you have to know that the God that shows up here in, in Judges, and really, God as He comes to us and Jesus says, Yeah, I'm not down with that. I'm, I'm not okay with relativism. I'm not okay with being one amongst many of your pantheon of gods. I'm either the Lord or I'm not. And I'm either your Lord or I'm not. We don't get to pick and choose this. And so God here, he's an exclusive God, and Jesus is an exclusive Savior. But Gideon feared that God wasn't with him, and so much so that in verse 22, the Lord has to show up to Gideon again and tells Gideon not to fear. Not to fear. By that point, Gideon, uh, he knew he had God's presence, and in the presence of God, Gideon is terrified. He's saying, oh my gosh, God, if you are here, it seems like you are through these signs and wonders he did. Then he's terrified that God is going to wipe him out. Don't kill me. And God shows up and says, I'm not going to kill you. So we fear God's absence, but I think we also fear God's presence, don't we? What if God is actually real to you? What if he 
sees the things that you've done? What if he sees the porn that you binged on last night? What if he sees the way that, that you thought about those girls, or the way that you talked about them? What if God is actually real and what if he's with you? Aren't you scared a little bit? If you understand God at all, you should be. Because his presence, he is absolutely, utterly holy, which means that he can have nothing to do with sin. And so, friends, this gets a conundrum for us, that we fear God's absence, but we also fear his presence. So how do we escape dreading the presence of God? The answer ultimately is in Jesus. That in Jesus... We have God's presence and we have forgiveness for our sin. And so if you know Jesus, you have the promise that God is with you. And if you know Jesus, you have the promise that God can be with you and not utterly destroy you because he has already destroyed your sin on the cross when he when he destroyed Jesus there. And so that's the gospel. That's how this plays in. Um, And we begin to get hints of this here with Gideon. Okay, so if we can relate to Gideon's fears, he's a normal guy trying to make it in these times. We're ready to hear how God answers Gideon. And these next three are a good bit quicker. The first part of God's answer comes in verse 7. God heard his people's cries for help, so he sends a judge, a deliverer. No, he sends a pastor, which would have been very disappointing, Um, right? They wanted some military leader to swoop in, destroy the Midianites, And we see in verse 7 that he sends a prophet. Um, A guy named Ralph Davis who wrote a commentary on this passage or on all of Judges. He says, this would be like your car breaking down on the side of the road and you call the tow truck and they send a philosopher instead. It's going to be confusing. And it was really confusing for them when they were under all this oppression. They cried out for a deliverer and a prophet shows up. Now, you might be a little confused, but we have to understand this about God. God will always do what he knows is best for us, even if that contradicts what we think is best for us. God will always do what he knows is best for us and not always what we think is best for us. And he knew that if he were just to send another deliverer, someone other to kind of rescue them, He knew that wouldn't get at the deep heart issues of their life, that they had been serving the Baals and they'd been giving themselves to all these other gods. So he sends a pastor to confront them and to tell them about their sin and how they needed to repent. And so here he comes. The prophet comes and gives a two-point sermon. The first point is verses 8 through 10. I'm giving a sermon about a sermon. What could be more boring? But um, here he is, verse 8 through 10. Here's all these amazing things God's done for you. He brought you out of Egypt and he delivered you into this land. God is amazing. And, And point two of the sermon is the second half of verse 10. He says this, And you have not followed him. You have not obeyed my voice. And so what do we naturally think is going to happen? If God said, look, I'm amazing, I've done all these things for you, you haven't followed me, we expect judgment. They expected judgment. But that's not what happens. Instead of expected judgment, they get unexpected grace. Out of God's love, His deep, committed husband love for His bride, He sends them a deliverer at this point. He sends them a prophet first to to deal with their heart issues, and now he sends a deliverer. 
It sounds really familiar to something that Paul says in Romans 5a. Paul says, look, while we are still sinners, God shows his own love for us in that he sends Jesus. It doesn't say that you get your lives together and you start kind of living and doing all the right things and stop getting drunk and stop binging on porn and all this stuff, and then God will save you. Paul says, God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ dies for us. Friends, that is the difference between religion, between moralism, and between the gospel. Because a, a religious system says, if you get your life together, God will accept you. And the gospel says, God will accept you, and then he will send his spirit to fill you so that you can begin to put the pieces back together. And those are utterly different. And the Bible is... is begging us to move toward the gospel and away from just kind of this religious system. So Gideon is God's gracious answer to his people's cry for help. But what about Gideon? What about this deliverer? Well, we see that he is fragile and he has a fragile faith. God shows up and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, which is hilarious because Gideon is hiding. He's not mighty. He's not full of valor. He's hiding. Gideon responds and tells, uh, talks about Yahweh's apparent absence from things like, God, where have you been? In verse 14, he tells Gideon he's going to use him to save and deliver them from Midian's hand. Gideon goes on and says, no, 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 I'm terrible. I'm, I'm weak. I'm all these things. But God says this, I will be with you. I will be with you. It's the personal promise of God that makes all the difference. You know what this is like. If you like somebody, um, you kind of start working all the angles. You hang out, um, kind of work the side over there. You get to know their friends, and, and you find out on the side from their friends if they like you. So that when you eventually ask them out or when they ask you out, you can figure out if, if they're going to say yes. Right? And so it's nice along that process to hear that someone likes you. That's always exciting to hear. But isn't it so much better when that person tells you to himself? When face-to-face, he or she looks at you and says, I like you. Or even one day, I love you. That's so much more powerful. It's so much more meaningful to get this personal promise. And God shows up to Gideon right here and says, I will be with you. Even though you think you're a nobody from a clan of nobodies, I am going to be with you. He gets the personal promise. Ralph Davis says again, he says, basically God has nothing else or nothing more to offer you. You can go through a lot with that promise, though. It does not answer your questions about details. It only provides the essentials. Nothing about when or where or why, only about what, or better, the who. I will be with you, and that is enough. Except for Gideon, it's not. It's not enough. His faith is fragile. He doesn't trust God that God's going to be with him. He doesn't really um, know this Yahweh too well because he's lived in this pluralistic society. And and so verse 17, he looks at God and says, so show me a sign. Yeah, 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 you just promised you're going to be with me, but show me a sign. Help my unbelief. Strengthen my faith. Throw me a bone, God. And he does. Gideon prepares this huge meal and God takes up like fire from the rock and consumes it. And so then Gideon knew that the presence of God was there. He got it. He knew that God was with him. But he was terrified. 
Because God's presence is terrifying. Will He consume me? And God looks out and says, Peace be with you. Friends, do you know that in Christ you are offered the peace of God? You don't have to be terrified in His presence. Peace be with you, Gideon. So God meets Gideon's fragile faith by saying, I am with you. And yet we see that God doesn't even end the story there. He goes on to do something else. He asks Gideon to take that fragile faith and to put it into action. He says, go and cut down the Baal altar and take down the Asherah pole next to it. Now, that may have been kind of like an obvious thing. Yeah, go do that. But did you see what's in the details in verse 25? This altar and this Asherah pole that God tells him to rip down, they belong to Gideon's dad. God is asking Gideon to go even against his family in order to follow him. Gideon, in response to the grace that I've shown you, I've given you my presence, you now have to go and live this way. I'm going to ask you to do a hard thing, and I need for you to do that. And Gideon does, and he does it at night, and we think that's cowardly, but let's be honest, wouldn't you do that too? I don't want my dad to see me do this. I don't want friends to see me do this. He goes at night. Look, God is not asking you and saying you have to be a hero. He wants your obedience. He does not need your heroism. God can handle your fragile faith. And so Gideon does it, and he goes and gathers the army to fight the Midianites, and he's ready to go kick butt and take names. He's just knocked down Daddy's altar. He's, he's feeling all high and mighty, right? Nope. He needs another sign from God. And so he says, God, come on, do this fleece thing. Make it wet this night. And then God does it, and we think that would be enough. And it's not. And he says, well, okay, let's, let's switch it next night. Make it dry and make everything else wet. And so God does it. And, and do you notice that God does it? That God gives him a sign of his presence. Gideon, I am with you. You have to know this. I've given you these signs again and again. I'm with you. And man, if you're like me, we want God to give us a sign that He's with us. People have, have put out fleeces. Maybe you have. I won't make you raise your hand. But you want to know that you have God's presence. And friends, what I want to tell you is that you do. God has shown that you have His presence. He's given us a sign. And do you want to know what it is? The Lord's Supper. Whoa, didn't see that coming. The Lord's Supper. How is that a sign that God is with us? Here's how. At the Lord's Supper, when Jesus instituted, institutes it with His disciples at the end of all the Gospels, here's what He's saying. This is My body which is given for you. This is My blood which is the sign of the new covenant. Which The covenant is a promise. What Jesus is saying is that I'm with you and I will always be with you. And so as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim my death on the cross, my resurrection until I come again. Friends, the Lord's Supper is God's sign that He is with you. And so the question for you is, are you with Him? Do you know the Jesus who has promised to be with you? He's not asking you to get your life together. He's saying, trust me, I gave my life for all of your untogetherness. I'm for you. I'm with you. You have my presence. I'm going to close by asking a couple questions of application. I don't have a cool NHL story like last week. Sorry. But let me ask you these questions as we think about this. 
Where might God be asking you to take action and respond to His grace by tearing down some idols of your own heart? What are the things that you are functionally giving your heart and your life to? Where are you looking for meaning and significance? And friends, one of the ways you know that is, what do you get angry about? What really bothers you? Who's messing with that thing? Whatever that thing is, probably is an idol of your heart. Or whatever goes away in your life and you're utterly distraught, that shows you what the idols of your heart are. So what would God be asking you to tear down in order to worship Him? Another question, what are you, um, what are you giving your time and energy and heart to other than Him? Same question. Uh, what do you need to say, Lord, you can have this. And as I give it up, you're going to have to convince me because my faith is fragile. Help me to believe and help me to trust you. Another question, where is fear keeping you from trusting that in Christ God is with you? What do you fear? What are the real deep fears of your heart? Is it fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of not getting the job, fear of Fear of your parents and what they might think of you or losing social privilege? Where is fear keeping you from giving God the access to those parts of your life? And as you move forward from here, even with fragile faith, I want you to know that God gives us the signs that He loves us and is with us. He sends us preachers. He doesn't always send us the first aid kit to put our lives together. He sends us His Word and he sends us his, his body. And he says, I'm with you. And where do you get all these things? You get them at church. That's my big climax. Yeah, you go to church. Not because it makes you a good person, but because God is promising that he is going to meet you there. And he's going to convince you that he is with you and that he is for you. And in Christ, that's the promise, that's the hope, that God will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray together.